Earlier this month, you may have read about or seen on television uh, an account of Eric Chris, uh, Christian Eriksson, the 29-year-old midfielder for the Danish national soccer team. In the 41st minute of the Euro 2020 match against Scandinavian rival Finland, Eriksson collapsed on the pitch from cardiac arrest. His coaches and teammates rushed to his aid and formed a wall around him to protect the view, protect him from the view of onlookers while medical personnel administered CPR. In these uncertain moments that followed, his wife and thousands of spectators watched and prayed in shock and fear, uncertain if he would live. 30 seconds after shocking his heart with the defibrillator, Erickson's heart was beating on its own. And he regained consciousness. The doctor who was attending him asked a question. Well, are you back with us? To which Erickson replied, expletive omitted, yes, I am back with you. I am only 29 years old. What a marvelously revealing answer to the doctor's question. For those around him, excitement about the match turned to panic. And minutes later, the game resumed. Denmark losing to Finland 1-0. Given the choice of the text to preach on this morning, um, this is the difficult one. It's also the long one because it deals with a difficult topic. Unless you've come close to losing your life, you probably have not much spent much time lately thinking about its fragility. No one thinks today will be the day. No one ever thinks that their next breath will be their last. When it comes to death, people tend to go about in a state of denial as if somehow guaranteed a certain amount of life and relative good health. Through the invincible years of youth, the busy years of raising children and striving for status and security, and into the sunset years of doctor's appointments and spiritual introspection, most people live without much regard to the fragility of life until there's a desperate cardiac moment. In 2012, our bishop, Terrell Glenn, speaking at a conference in Raleigh, said something that has stuck with me ever since. He said, personal pain robs perfect perspective, but worship restores it. Again, personal pain robs perspective, but worship restores it. Now, I'm an artist. And I'm learning a lot about perspective these days and how it works. The way perspective works is that the things in the foreground are much clearer than the things that are off in the distance. They're richer in color and sharper in focus. They're the object that your eyes are drawn to while the things that are in the background are lighter and vague and much more nebulous. When we experience personal pain, that pain comes right front and center 
with sharp clarity and rich color. And at those times, God can seem far away, fading off into the distance, nebulous, absent. At no time is it truer than when confronted with our own mortality or the prospect of losing someone that we love and being powerless to prevent it. Even as believers, our perspective on God's faithfulness can get turned around and hope can fade off into the distance. All of a sudden, doubt, uncertainty, and fear are what are standing right in front of us. In a painful season, praying and singing hymns and even being in a crowd at church can add to the hurt. Pain can feel a lot like condemnation. As if God has withdrawn his love on account of something in us and replaced it with silence. Worship can seem like a futile mandate. Like God is judging the merits of our prayers. When all our heart can seem to muster is weak, insufficient, disingenuous, and empty. How do we regain perspective? How do we gain perspective in the face of death? The question is, how do we worship when the end of life and the fear of death is standing right in front of us and God seems far away? In Mark chapter 5, verse 21, we find the disciples and Jesus arriving back on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee on the way to Jesus' home. In Mark's gospel, Jesus and the disciples take many journeys by boat back and forth across the Sea of Galilee. Jesus is now returning from the region of the Gerasenes where he's cast a legion of demons from a man living among the tombs into a herd of pigs. He went there presumably to escape the ceaseless demands of the crowd who were constantly pressing against him and asking for him to heal. He goes there to find rest and as usual when he gets there, he finds himself among outsiders, the possessed, the sick, and the unclean, and the crowd begins to grow again. The exhausting, inescapable demands of the crowd made the two-hour journey by boat the only opportunity that Jesus had to rest. It kind of explains why when caught in a storm, Jesus is asleep at the back of the boat and not awake. He's that exhausted. As he arrives back on the western shore, he's greeted by the large crowd that surrounds him. It says in verse 22, Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him, and a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. I'm sure you can imagine, perhaps, or maybe you can't, what um, it must be like in Jared's, uh, Jerry, Jairus's heart and mind at this moment. 
We really know very little about Jairus from what Mark records. Really only a couple of things. His name is Jairus. That's a big deal. Because he's one of only two characters uh, in the miracles of Jesus and Mark that has a name. The other being Bartimaeus. He's a person of importance. Jairus is recorded as a leader in the synagogue. And from that we know that he's a person of status. That he's a model of religious devotion. He's what, the he what in Hebrew they would have said is tahur. He's clean. He's righteous. Ceremonially, physically, morally. He's got it all together. He's a person of honor. He's a member of the religious leadership, an insider among the insiders. I would also point out that he would be categorized among the group that now is fully opposed to Jesus and conspiring to bring about his death. Accusing him of breaking the law, working on the Sabbath, associating with sinners, touching the unclean, and blaspheming against God. But here we also have Jairus in anguish because his daughter is at the point of death. She could die any moment. The question that comes to mind for me is why didn't he get there sooner? Why wasn't he there already? I mean, why didn't he get him before he left to go across to the Gerasenes? I suppose that when she first got sick, Jairus likely didn't consider going to Jesus based on the community in which he lived and his feelings about Jesus that would be collective among the people in his community. When he saw that she was growing worse and worry started to set in, Jairus may have considered uh, going to Jesus and probably even would have consulted others around him for their opinions. Perhaps fearing the consequences of betraying these friends and their opinions and going to Jesus. Maybe that caused him to delay. When her condition became critical, perhaps he agonized over whether Jesus would even help someone in that category, somebody who stood in opposition alongside others. Maybe Jairus just remained doubtful about Jesus' power to save or whether he could get there in time. We really don't know. All we know is Jairus is out of options. Thus far, Mark has given an account of the miracles of Jesus to authenticate the message from God at Jesus' baptism. This is my beloved son, with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. He is the Messiah who will save God's people. As opposition mounts, Mark continues to reveal the expanse of Jesus' power with every challenge. As the resistance grows against him, his power seems to get greater and greater. There's no challenge that he can't meet. Does he have the power over unclean spirits? Yes. Can he heal sick? Yes. Can he forgive sins? Yes. Can he make the lame walk? Yes. Can he cast out a demon? Yes. Can he calm the wind and the seas? Can he cast out a thousand demons? Yes. The resistance grows and his power grows. Here in chapter 5, the remaining uncertainty about Jesus, though, is evidenced by Jairus, his urgent life and death crisis. Will Jesus get there in time to save his daughter? The implication is that he might be a great teacher. 
He might be a great miracle worker. But when it comes to death, that's where we draw the line. If he doesn't get there in time, that's it. There's nothing more that Jesus can do. Here Mark does what he, we talked about a few weeks ago, and that he uses this technique of telling a story in a way that starts a story and then interjects another story and then comes back to the story in order to sort of frame and highlight something in the middle that's very important. Well, what's in the middle that's very important? Well, no sooner had they started on their way than everything comes to a stop. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all she had and was no better but grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him and touched him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garment, I will be made well. It's interesting how there's so little information about Jairus and so much about the woman who has no name. What do we see? Well, we see that she's nameless, um, which implies that she's not an important person, a person of status. She's suffering from a disease that for 12 years has caused her to have a discharge of blood. A lot of speculation about what that might be, uh, but there's certain things that you can say for sure. For 12 years, blood has been flowing out of her. Life is in the blood. Her life has been flowing out of her for 12 years. It's the picture that we should, we should see. The woman is dying. She's dying a slow death. As a consequence, under Levitical law, she's not Tahur, she's Tame. Tame is physically, morally, ceremonially unclean. Because of this condition, she has to social distance. She has to stand away from the crowd, cover her mouth, and cry out Tame to warn people not to come near for fear of becoming contaminated themselves. Seems a little familiar. In her decline, she's given up all that she has, all of her financial resources, to physicians in the hope that they could save her. But they've only taken her money and compounded her suffering. They've only made things worse. It's a, you know, my brother was a doctor in China for 23 years, and one of the things that was true about medicine practice over there is they don't tell you the truth. And they'll give you a remedy and keep giving it to you, even though things get worse, without telling you it's not working. Because they want the money. And they're not concerned about taking it from you. That's the situation she's in. Her lot is a death sentence. It's like Jairus' little daughter, but hers is a slow death. She has no one there calling her daughter, knowing no one there pleading her case. Where Jesus saw Jairus... She only heard reports about him. Where Jairus came up in front of Jesus and stopped in his way, fell at his feet, and begged for attention, she was stealthy. She just wanted to come up and just steal enough to take care of the physical suffering. In spite of their differences, I want to say that here is where I think the contrast between Jairus and the woman start to end. 
the contrast goes away and they become increasingly more similar, which is what happens in the meat of the sandwich. Believing herself unworthy, she had only hoped in her heart that if she touched his garments, she would receive exactly what Jairus was asking for, for his little daughter, that she would be made well, that her life would be saved. 2,000 years ago, things were not as they are today. Women in that time and place had no rights. They couldn't own property. They couldn't run a business. They had no status apart from their husband. Their status depended on him. In the eyes of the crowd and even himself, Jairus had reason to be proud. All of his honor, authority, and privilege were the product of who he was. Whether by right or by inheritance, they were the reward from God for his faithful devotion in the way that he viewed himself. Her status was the lowest rung of dishonor. Just as Jairus had felt a place of honor as a just reward, she would have believed in her whole heart, based on everything she knew, that her life of shame and isolation, her poverty, disease, suffering, decline, and impending death were God's just punishment. Like Jairus, who laid aside the honor to fall at Jesus' feet, she set aside her shame and came up behind him and broke the law. They both seemed to set aside their sense of personal worth to come to Jesus. For both the truth that they had once trusted, their perspective on life was broken. It had been robbed by their impending death. It had vanished off into the distance. In verse 29, and immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed from her disease. And Jesus perceived in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said, you see the crowd pressing around and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. In terms of the narrative, here is where the van's alternator goes out on a trip back from Booyah. And the trip home goes from crisis to catastrophe, at least for Jairus. We can imagine Jairus pulling Jesus toward home, the crowd pressing against him as a form of resistance. The likelihood of getting there in time is already low and it's going down. Jesus, come on, we can't wait. My need has priority. Sacrificing his honor to come and hear Jesus come to Jesus, Jairus has bet the farm on a desperate hope. An expectation that Jesus will come, he'll come right away. They'll go as quick as they can, they'll get there and they'll be there in time. 
The story is so rich with detail. But the greatest detail seems to be Jesus' indifference to the urgency and the crisis that Jairus is going through. That seems so uncharacteristic to us. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. We're trying to rationalize it by who has priority. There's a lot of people who've built sort of liberation theology around Jesus' preference for the poor and downtrodden to the exclusion of everybody else. We've made these things up in order to sort of sort things out that don't make sense. When the woman touches Jesus, she is not trying to draw attention to herself or get in the way of important business. In spite of feeling physically healed and asking nothing more, it's Jesus sensing a discharge of power, very much like our discharge of blood, life flowing out, life flows in. He stops immediately. For us as observers, as part of the crowd, we're, we're to feel the crushing weight of Jairus' crisis. As Jesus stands there looking around the crowd and waiting, Mark amplifies Jairus' growing hopelessness and our growing hopelessness about this situation when the woman, knowing what has happened, comes, before, comes forward. This is going to take some time. She exposes her posture of lingering shame, trembling in fear and falling at his feet. She's been healed of her disease, but she's not made whole. It's a double touch of healing. The crisis intensifies for Jairus as she tells him not just a little bit of the story, but the whole story. It's the whole thing. It's why we have such a long record of the details of what's going on for her and so little about Jairus. He doesn't tell, Je- he doesn't tell Jesus all the things about him. He's just like, I got to go. And she, but she goes, whole story. Imagine Jairus when she begins, well, it happened like this 12 years ago. How he must have felt this man of importance when Jesus stopped for this nameless woman without an apparent urgent need. Hers is a sweet and powerful story of restoration and worship. It's meat in the sandwich. She had nothing. She had no merits. Only her shame. Only her necessity. She snuck up behind him trying to steal just a little hoping to be made well. What Mark reveals to us is that Jesus is able and wants to give us so much more than we can ask or imagine. She came right before Jesus and laid everything before him in faith. Her pain, her fear bound up in feelings of unworthiness that robbed her of perspective. The woman is restored, but not by restoring her to that old perspective, but by giving her a new perspective. When she confesses her unworthiness, Jesus reveals something to her. He reveals the magnitude of his worthiness. He heals her not only in body, not only on the outside, but saves her in mind and in spirit as well. Jesus does not want to give, does not want to save us only from the dying parts. He's not just here as a cure for, for our mortal ailments. 
For the crowd, Jesus should go first to Jairus' daughter because she's the beneficiary of Jairus' honor. He calls her daughter. He conveys like he would convey to his wife the value of his rights and his privilege and his authority. In chapter 5, Jairus laid his honor at the feet of Jesus, putting Jesus above himself in the beginning, you think? Now what's Jesus doing? Jesus is taking his honor, his honor that is superior to Jairus's honor, and he's conveying it to this nameless woman with one word, daughter. It's so powerful. It's what he does for us when he calls us his children, when he calls us by name. That's what worship is. Worship is Jesus taking his worthiness and putting it on us. It's taking away everything that we think about in terms of our own worthiness and replacing it with permanent, true, eternal worthiness in his name. He is our worth, and we have been granted the right to be called his children. In verse 35, while he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. Jairus' honor and status are in pieces along the side of the road from the edge of the Sea of Galilee to his house. To the bewildered crowd and the anxious disciples, this proclamation by the people who have come out from his house to say his daughter is dead is shocking and tragic. It is a reversal of fortunes. Jairus has now lost everything. He's lost his perspective. He's lost his status, his reputation. The assurance that he once had as a man at the center of the religious community and nothing of greater value than his little daughter, who's now dead. To persist would be foolish, is the implication in this passage. Jesus is just a teacher. Don't bother the teacher anymore. There is nothing more he can do. She's dead. He has reached the limit. And it's been demonstrated that it's not going to happen. But here, Jesus begins to restore Jairus' perspective, to give him a new perspective, saying, Do not fear, only believe. Jesus separates Jairus from the crowd, bringing only Peter, James, and John, and they proceed into the house. All the people outside are professional mourners that confirm for us the reality of the fact that she has died. Entering into the house, Jesus rebukes the mourners for all their noise. The child is not dead, but sleeping. But the unbelieving crowd laughs at him. 
you can hear in the tone of verse 40 the sense of, I told you so. You shouldn't have trusted that guy. He's a phony. It is as if Satan is whispering in Jairus' ear at this moment. See, he's not the Savior. He cares more about those sinners than about you. But he put them all outside and took the father's hand and the mother and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha Kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement, and he strictly charged them that no one should know this, and told them to give her something to eat. So this is the back half of the sandwich, Jairus getting there, the daughter uh, returning to the story, trying to figure out how it's going to end, what's going to happen. But here also, Mark is raising the stakes. So far, Jesus has not let us down. He's demonstrated power to do everything. Authenticating the truth that he is the son of God. How could he possibly restore Jairus now if they're too late? In fact, as he enters the house, Jairus' Jairus's downfall is absolutely complete in comparison to the nameless woman. And that coming in contact with a dead body would make him ceremonially unclean. His life is shattered to pieces and his 12-year-old daughter is dead. Jesus takes the little girl's hand and says in Aramaic, little girl, I say to you, arise, and immediately she got up. As proof of life, she begins walking around. And to confirm that she's not a ghost, sort of like they did, like Jesus did in the upper room after the resurrection, he gives her something to eat. And Jairus and his wife and the disciples were amazed. She was dead, but now she's alive. The final observation that I want to make is this. For the nameless woman, her healing and salvation was public. In the crowd, in full view. For Jairus, the resurrection of his daughter is private and personal and hidden. Jesus strictly commands them to tell no one. Why do you suppose that is? I believe that like the nameless woman, Jesus has made it impossible for her to return to the old perspective. He's restored her in public view. He's embraced her and called her his daughter and conveyed upon her all the rights and privileges of his name in a way that can't be undone because everybody saw it. For Jairus, it's the opposite. He's taken Jairus's loss of perspective, his old life of honor and status, He's taking it, he's taken it away. Nothing is left for Jairus to hang his hat on. 
except the power of Jesus, which he alone, along with his wife, is witnessed and they can't tell anybody about. There's no redemption for Jairus. There's no going back among the community and restoring his place of honor. He's now on the side of Jesus. His enemies were his friends. Jesus told the mourners, she's only sleeping. And he brought her to life in secret. For Jairus, this has lasting consequences. He's given him a new perspective, the perspective of the power over death, the perspective that even the grave, Jesus has power over. When Jesus refers to her and says she's only sleeping, what he's doing for us is changing for us by the evidence that we've seen, the power of death. He's changing it. It's not the death that we expect. For us, it's a sleep. We'll all go to sleep. But he's proven to us, not here, because the real proof of who he is comes at his own resurrection. But he's beginning to demonstrate for us the hope that is so critical to our faith. He has power over death. We'll fall asleep, but we're going to be raised. We're going to awake. We're going to, he's going to say to us, I say to you, arise. Here's the hitch. This is how I'll conclude. You know, so for us, whether we're at this end of the spectrum or that, we don't like to think about death. We don't like to talk about death. We don't like to consider it in our own case, and we don't like to consider it in the case of other people, especially those we love. But it is vitally important that we carry it in us all the time. It has bearing on how we live our lives, what we fear, what we do, how we talk to other people, how we regard them and their mortality, the necessity, the urgency around their salvation. What is hard is that in our hearts, we still have so much of the old self that limits how we live and how we think. In Jeremiah 17, 9, it says, The heart is deceitful above all else and desperately sick. We want to put God in our debt. We want him to owe us. We want there to be some merit, some worthiness in us on which we can point to and say, that's why. That's why me and not you. That's why him and not her. We want to be worthy of answered prayer. As we pray, we often think about our own worthiness and whether God's going to answer because of who we are and what we've done. But this is the God who died for his enemies. While we were his enemies, while we were like Jairus, he died for us. I want you to know and put your hope in this this morning. As we find in 1 John chapter 3, verse 20, that whenever your heart condemns you, he is greater than your heart. He knows everything. 
And we can have confidence before God because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. That might seem like the law back on top of us again, but here's the commandment. That you believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. Worship is not our best efforts toward God. It's not taking us from one place and putting us in another where everything else is the same. He's not restoring our perspective because painful things have happened. The pain of death has happened in our life. He's taken this perspective that we had without him and he's replaced it with the perspective of his power in our life and his power that's for us. This is a difficult, difficult message. Um, you know, I don't know where everybody is in their own personal circumstances, but this is a hard one. Hard to hear, hard to preach. But there is so much hope. It is where hope is found. Mark is proclaiming to us that Jesus has the power over the thing that threatens us the most. Amen.